Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will talk about the critical care of the cardiac surgical patient. Cardiac surgery represents one of the most common categories of surgery performed in the United States today. For many reasons, intensivist involvement in the postoperative care of these patients continues to increase. Close collaboration between the intensivist and the operating surgeon is essential for a comprehensive and successful postoperative care. It's a pleasure to have as a guest Dr. John Greenwood, who's Assistant Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine, Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical School of the University of Pennsylvania, and also Medical Director of the Resuscitation and Critical Care Unit of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Greenwood divides his time between the critical care and emergency medicine. Half of his clinical time is spent working in Penn's heart and vascular ICU, and the other half in a relatively new EDICU space at HUP. He is the editor-in-chief of the EMRA Presser Dex and has a particular interest in the resuscitation of cardiovascular emergencies, mechanical circulatory support, and time-sensitive critical illness. Dr. Greenwood is also an active participant and member of the FOAM community and currently serves as administrator and contributor to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine, a monthly CME podcast on resuscitation and critical care-related issues that can present to the ED, and to the Critical Care Project, CCP, a multi-institutional website designed to be a multidisciplinary educational resource on topics in critical care. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Sergio. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about a particular topic that that I love and uh, spend a lot of time doing, which is uh, the post-cardiac surgery patient. So thank you for having me. So I think we can start. I mean, we talked about how common it is. And for many reasons, what used to be the purview of CT surgeons alone now includes in an increasingly frequency the collaboration or as members of the team of intensivists with different backgrounds in terms of training. What, what is unique about caring for these post-op patients in general, John? Well, I think that um, the fun thing about this is that managing these patients as an intensivist, you kind of have to know a little bit about the surgical details of a lot of these different procedures. And some of the procedures uh, we're going to touch upon are, are the general ones. So the most common uh, surgeons or surgeries that are done today um, are still cabbages and single valve replacements. And I think the goal of today is probably not to go too much into the surgical details or the specific complications, but talk about some of the most common things that can arise in a post-operative course. And so the important thing to know as an intensivist is really how to recognize these things and what to look out for. What are some of the signs that um, might be subtle at first, but can rapidly unravel and uh, put the patient in shock. So uh, these are very dynamic patients. And so um, really things that uh, really need to stay on top of early and, and make some rapid clinical decisions because the implications and outcomes, if the, the decision is not made correctly, um, can be really, really important. Um, so uh, I think that's those are probably some of the most important things uh, to discuss today. Excellent. And I think that as a framework, we will talk a little bit about the routine postoperative management and then jump into, like you said, some of the most common complications that we need to recognize and be aware of, and finally close with some of the relationship and 
issues with, uh, between cardiac surgery and the intensivist. But I, I would like to start with um, the first uh, part of the post-op management, which is really what I consider to be a high danger zone, which is the patient leaves the OR and arrives to the ICU. Can you talk about that specific uh, transition of care and what can we do to make it as safe as possible? Absolutely. So um, I think we can all agree that handoffs are probably one of the highest risk areas, whether or not they're coming from the emergency department um, or from the operating room. The, this is a critical time to learn a lot about what potentially is going on with the patient. And I know at, at HUP, what we've done is we've developed a specific handoff tool that um, I'd be happy to make available to the listeners. But it goes over basically a lot of the different things that happen in the operating room, as well as uh, and in terms of from the surgical side as well, the anesthesia side. Um, some of these surgical uh, pieces of information that are important will be things like what were the cardiopulmonary bypass time? What was the cross clamp time? Um, <clears throat> what did they find that the optimal filling pressures and hemodynamics were at the end of the operating room uh, operative case? Uh, what were any of the intra-op issues, complications, and, and what are the surgeon's hemodynamic goals based on um, what they perceived uh, during the operative case? And I think we can all agree that the operating room uh, can sometimes be a little bit of a mystery, a black box. And, you know, it's it's not uncommon that, you know, the surgeons may have encountered something and, and to them might not have been a big issue. Um, but it's important to get these details up front to kind of know what the lie of the land is. And certainly from the cardiac anesthetist, they're going to provide some other vital information. Uh, how was the airway? Was it a difficult airway? Was it an easy airway access? Um, what type of access is the patient coming out with? Uh, what were their post-operative and pre-operative echo findings, particularly with the TEE, um, that might impact your decisions on how to manage this patient in the ICU? Um, certainly what vasoactives, what inotropes the patient's on, how much blood they required. And then lastly, what, how did they decide to ventilate the patient over the course of the case? Um, did they have any issues with ventilation or hypoxemia? And certainly many of these patients come out with epicardial pacemakers. So uh, what are their current pacemaker settings and um, thresholds in terms of uh, obtaining capture? Those are all really, really important pieces of information. And, and what I hear, John, which is I think what we have seen in, in my own practice, what really helps is two factors uh, in this handover, hand, handover, which is number one, team approach. So you need the OR team and the ICU team all present. And number two, a standardized approach where you cover these items every single time on every single patient. Yeah, that's right. And this is something that we uh, place a high importance on. And uh, every patient that's delivered to the ICU from the operating room, we have a basically a team huddle at the bedside. Um, it's not something that's done five minutes after the patient arrives, kind of at a, a conference room table, or that the uh, if there's an advanced practitioner managing uh, or taking handover, um, this is done collectively as a group. Excellent. Uh, for the nurses to be involved, for, for the surgeons to be involved, and everyone to feel, uh, or basically communication to be optimized, so that everyone kind of knows uh, what to expect and what to look out for. Excellent. And I think another unique aspect of these uh, cardiac surgery patients is that uh, they might have a lot of hemodynamic instability in the first 24 hours, especially up front after surgery, and then most of them end up being very stable and move forward and transition through a very protocolized um, 
pathway. Let's talk a little bit about the acute hemodynamic management, which I think is a great part of what we need to do in the ICU. Why don't we start with blood pressure issues that might be seen in these surgeries and your thoughts on that, John? No, sounds great. So, um, in my, and I don't think this is a, an opinion that's held by myself, but uh, just by myself, but certainly uh, nurses that are comfortable and uh, experienced in managing post-cardiac surgery patients are truly worth their weight in gold. Uh, these patients are, in fact, some of the most dynamic patients that are going to present to your ICU. Um, and certainly our approach is to provide a goal-directed approach that enables the bedside nurse to make clinical decisions uh, rapidly at the bedside, whether that's titration of drips, uh, vasopressors, inotropes, um, that's not required for the, for the physician necessarily to be at the bedside making these titrations because these are often done on a minute-to-minute -minute basis uh, right out of the OR. So a, a strong clinical uh, cardiac experience ICU nurse is invaluable. But when we're talking about uh, specific resuscitation endpoints, I think, as we all do, we probably divide them up into certain categories, and particularly blood pressure um, is one of them. And, and uh, a MAP target, generally somewhere along the lines of 65 to 80, is usually reasonable. And this may be variable based on uh, what the surgeon encounters in the operating room, whether or not that what or what surgery the patient had. But in general, somewhere between 65 and 80 is a reasonable target. Now, some of these things that might change that could be severe uh, left ventricular hypertrophy uh, or uh, uh, basically SAM or systolic anterior movement of the mitral valve found on echo. Uh, some of these patients may have a really stiff left ventricle and require higher filling pressures and higher afterload. So again, going back to the importance of a handoff at the end, is gonna be important. Now, some other things that might change your target might be if the patient has some post-operative bleeding problems. So if the patient has some hemorrhaging, some oozing at the end, lower mean arterial pressure, not to cause any excessive bleeding. So in order to achieve those things, we'll certainly focus on uh, using a specific vasopressor, and uh, that may be something like a norepinephrine uh, or even phenyl phenylephrine if um, if your unit feels comfortable with that. I think many people are leaning on the side of norepinephrine as first-line vasopressor. Now, outside of blood pressure in general, uh, we wanna focus on obviously cardiac index and not just the index or the macrocirculatory variable, but obviously downstream uh, numbers like SVO2 that focus on more or less oxygen extraction and perfusion. So in general, uh, from a cardiac index standpoint, we usually target somewhere around two to 2.2 liters per minute per meter squared. And uh, we still at HUP use a, a lot of pulmonary artery catheters. I know there are some surgeons that have moved on to doing uh, cardiac surgery without pulmonary artery uh, catheters, but uh, we still rely on them heavily, but that's partly in due to our, our patient population tends to be a little more higher risk as they refer to a, a, a pretty uh, high, higher level academic center. Um, other variables, so obviously right-sided filling pressures or CVP, we still do monitor and there's lots of reason for reasons for this, which we'll go into in just a little bit, um, but this target can be variable, and uh, we don't usually use it for the idea or the concept of volume responsiveness, but uh, less uh, keeping an eye on the right ventricle as well as um, filling pressures to make sure we're kind of optimized um, from a cardiac output uh, perspective. Uh, PA pressures are something we're going to be monitoring heav heavily, especially with the PAC in place, and like I mentioned before, getting a good sense of not just what these maps 
activatory variables are, but really what's what's happening to the patient? What's their lactate doing? Uh, are they clearing uh, clearing lactate, uh, which can be kind of tricky, especially if they underwent cardiopulmonary bypass, is this, uh, this number can oftentimes uh, elevate in the initial phases of resuscitation despite uh, gaining ground, if you will. Uh, urinary output is helpful. Um, and then obviously, uh, first thing I do whenever I walk in the patient's room is, you know, feel their hands and feet. Are they cold? What's their capillary refill? Um, are they, are they, do they have clinical signs of, of perfusion? And I think that um, another aspect, obviously, that's very important in managing the hemodynamic aspect of these patients is fluid. And uh, there are some particular uh, maybe uh, factors that are relevant. Patients who undergo uh, cardiopulmonary bypass have many reasons to have third spacing, fluid depletion. And a lot of times when patients come up and have a low blood pressure, that might be the first intervention. Can you comment a little bit on, on the use of fluids in these patients, John? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the most part, uh, after coming out of the operating room, um, there may be some degree of vasoplegia, vasodilation, or even um, a large amount of volume that was ultrafiltrated coming off a of cardiopulmonary bypass. So uh, in general, I think it's reasonable to start with a, a fluid challenge if the patient from their hemodynamics appear to be either volume responsive and hypotensive or largely underfilled with a, a I'll give latitude to the nurses to provide a 20 to 30 cc kilo fluid uh, bolus, not all at once, but in 250 to 500 cc increments uh, to see if that improves our cardiac output, if it should be low and subsequently your blood pressure. Um, in general, we used balanced crystalloids. So uh, we may start with a, initial, a normal saline uh, bag coming up, but then quickly transition to something like lactated ringers, uh, just to kind of keep in mind that um, metabolic acidosis is something that um, we're going to be using to determine the f efficacy of our resuscitation. So try to minimize anything that causes a, um, a further acidosis, like normal saline, would be probably beneficial. Um, but after that, if uh, we are still requiring uh, volume uh, to improve our cardiac output and uh, our MAP, uh, we'll likely look to other things to use. And oftentimes, if there's a concern of bleeding, we'll quickly transition to a balanced transfusion strategy of uh, red blood cells, FFP, and um, platelets once we get to kind of that one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio if needed. And certainly thinking about other things that might benefit the patient if they're coagulopathic or if they need fibrinogen to form a clot, um, early cryoprecipitate is often uh, given to these patients if they're actively hemorrhaging. Um, we really don't use a lot of albumin uh, in terms of colloid. If we're really going to focus on use of colloid rather than crystalloid, um, we really focus on uh, balanced blood product transfusion. Um, unless we really start getting into large volume requirements, then we might lean on something like a, an albumin uh, infusion. But uh, I can tell you this is usually exception to the rule. So another aspect that I think is unique to these patients which we don't see in, in medical patients or other categories of critically ill patients, is that often, and I think this might be variable from program to program, but uh, surgeons will use a combination of a vasopressor and a vasodilator. Can you comment on that combination, which seems a little bit odd uh, a priori, but probably has some reasons behind it? No, yeah. So um, when when we talk about goal-resuscitated post-cardiac surgery care, we really I try to make it simple, or at least as simple as possible for the nurses to kind of decide which vasoactive to titrate. So um, really, when we're coming up with a comprehensive plan for this patient um, in their postoperative course, 
we focus on which drug are we using to achieve which goal. So are we try are, do we have a low blood pressure? And if we're trying to improve our MAP, we really want to focus on using a vasopressor. And like I said before, we have a few options here. And institutionally, this might be variable. But the most important thing probably is that there's a standard kind of pathway uh, for each achievable goal. So if your goal is to improve your MAP, do you want your nurse to titrate your norepi, or are they using something like vasopressin or neosinephrine or phenylephrine to achieve this MAP goal? And um, there has been some research recently that's been published in terms of trying to decide if one's better than the other. And particularly in post-cardiac surgery vasoplegic patients, um, there is a question of, should we be using a catecholamine like norepinephrine or something like vasopressin, uh, which targets a, a little bit of a different receptor, um, but obviously in some, uh, some believe that it spares uh, pulmonary artery pressure from uh, sort of uh, vasopressor effect. And this particular study was the, the Vanks trial that was just published last year, where they looked at comparing norepinephrine to vasopressin for post-cardiac surgery vasoplegia. And they examined particular composite outcomes of mortality and severe complications at 30 days. And the general complications that they looked at in this composite group were stroke, prolonged ventilation, uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation, acute kidney injury. And what they found was that vasop the vasopressin group did seem to have a reduced primary outcome and lower incidence of atrial fibrillation, which I guess there's some biologic plausibility here because if you're not attacking sort of your beta adrenergic receptors as much, might reduce your um, catecholamine surge and AFib rates. Um, but obviously there's some criticisms here to this study because it was a single center study and um, there's it, it certainly wasn't definitive but does add to the evidence base for some clinical decision-making. So whether to use a catecholamine or vasopressin as your primary vasopressor um, certainly is something worth discussing with your intensivist group. Now, if you're looking to the second variable, which often we use, which is cardiac index, certainly you're going to want to use something like an inotrope. And our standard practice at HUP is we often and use epinephrine as our primary inotrope. So if our cardiac index is low, uh, starting to go up on your epinephrine dose. And certainly at, at lower doses, it's believed that epinephrine is actually an inodilator more than an inopressor. So having someone on two to four mics a minute of epinephrine or if you're using weight-based dose that might be a little bit different um, is, a, is a reasonable approach to improve your cardiac index. Now, some of these patients might have concomitant pulmonary hypertension, and if that's the case, and they're not hypotensive, uh, the use of a PD inhibitor or something like milrinone uh, might be a reasonable choice. Um, but obviously, both of these medications have their side effects and will limit the clinical care that you, or decisions that you might be making. Um, the vasodilatory effect of milrinone can often be profound, and uh, so a patient who's hypotensive really might not tolerate all that much milrinone at all. Um, but certainly, if you have encounter a patient with some RV dysfunction coming out of the operating room with the elevated pulmonary pressure, Milrono might be the ideal medication for them to improve their cardiac output. Now, uh, certainly epinephrine is a, is a reasonable choice and, again, doesn't have as much hypotensive effect. So um, it's usually a go-to right out of the OR, um, in, at least at our, uh, our institution. John, what about the, the other side of the spectrum, hypertension? A lot of patients come up with hypertension. There also might be some concerns regarding very high pressures and, uh, and their effect on LV afterload or even suture lines and valvular surgery. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so um, we are really aggressive about maintaining a strict range for, for blood pressure coming out. And uh, I think we have a few options. Now, certainly, um, 
it may just be uh, they need a afterload reducer. And so something like hydralazine for a single dose might be reasonable um, and to kind of see how the patient responds. Um, other things, common things being common, focus on uh, addressing things like post-operative pain and agitation. So these patients coming out of the OR uh, certainly might be uncomfortable. So before you get into the uh, afterload reducers, make sure that the patient has adequate pain control using morphine or uh, fentanyl. These are easy things to fix that might bring down your pressure altogether. Now, if you've addressed these things and the patient's not in pain, they're comfortable, uh, on the ventilator, um, then then you can start looking to these uh, other afterload reduced doses of hydralazine, patients still hypertensive. Uh, certainly, uh, starting uh, vasoactive like nicardipine uh, might be reasonable. There are some side effects of nicardipine that are worth looking out for. Obviously, um, the uh, vasodilator, so you can encounter some hypoxemia as uh, it might reduce your, uh, your patient's uh, pulmonary vasoconstriction to kind of fix, and you might get some shunting. Um, so keeping an eye on that might be important, but nicardipine is a reasonable approach to, um, to addressing uh, post-operative hypertension, at least right off the bat. Excellent. And I think that there's a, we can move on to maybe the mechanical ventilation aspect. And there's a very small group of patients with very specific surgeries that usually might be uh, extubated in the OR, but the vast majority of patients come to the ICU, intubate it, and this is an important part of a quality measure. Can you comment a little bit on the immediate post-op uh, ventilator management? No, absolutely. So I think that um, one of the things that we uh, pay very close attention to, obviously, is lung protective ventilation. Um, and it is reasonable to do this in post-cardiac surgery patients. Uh, I mean, I'm not getting as strict as, you know, the ARDS patient, the six cc's per kilo dipping down to five, that sort of thing. But a reasonable lung protective approach of six to eight cc's per kilo cardiac body weight is, is a good initial approach for most of these patients. Again, like you mentioned, these usually are short-term mechanical ventilation runs. So um, oftentimes, uh, um, you can, you'll be getting these patients extubated relatively quickly, but at least to start um, getting with, with lung protective ventilation is a, is a good approach. Now, um, certainly there are some targets as well as we talk about kind of goal-directed care. So uh, some PAO2 targets, so usually greater than 70 is reasonable. Um, there may be some times when you might push an oxygenation target a little bit higher. So if the patient has right ventricular dysfunction, um, it's reasonable to have a little bit of a higher target, somewhere between 85 to 100, just because we do know that um, hypoxemia or relative hypoxemia can lead to pulmonary vasoconstriction and increased RV afterload. Um, and the right ventricle is a little bit more sensitive as it does have a little bit of a decreased amount of coronary blood flow. So uh, certainly we wanna make sure that it it's, has adequate oxygenation but certainly not allowing for excessive periods of hyperoxia. Um, that is something that we're, we do pay close attention to. Um, in terms of ventilation targets, so our PACO2 target, uh, probably reasonable to be uh, to have a normal target, somewhere between you know, 30 to 40 or 25 to 45, um, not allowing too much uh, hypercapnia or permissive hypercapnia uh, in these patients, um, but we can usually achieve that pretty easily. Now, you did bring up something that's actually a really important quality metric, which is uh, something called the, you know, fast track extubation, I think is the common term. Um, and in general, uh, this is uh, a quality metric that looks at how fast you're able to extubate your post-operative cardiac surgery patients, particularly ones that underwent a cabbage or a single valve replacement. 
Um, and so the, the target of six hours is really important. Um, and this is used as a quality metric by the STS as well as a few other, um, only six hours, but really 24 hour exhibition rates is really, really institutions um, rating in terms of things like STS, STS stars, um, which are publicly reportable. So I think that achieving this is really, again, getting back to this multidisciplinary in the OR. And a lot of times the anesthetists are using very short acting, whether or not it's fentanyl, remifentanyl, narcotics um, in the OR so that basically the effects of these drugs uh, basically go away pretty things like uh, rewarming in the operating room rather than delivering the patient cold to the ICU. These are things that can shave off substantial amounts of time in terms of getting the patient ready for extubation. Um, so I think that minimizing sedation early and accepting uh, that you can extubate patients on a good amount of vasopressor is reasonable, uh, partly because we often can get a sense of what the trajectory of the patient's going to be. Uh, I just need a little bit of time. It's not like the medical patient that comes up who has a primary lung problem or is in septic shock. These patients should recover relatively quickly. So uh, getting uh, getting your providers comfortable with extubating patients on vasopressor will do really well. But certainly there's times when the complications might prohibit this and should be the exception rather than the rule. But um, certainly uh, some of these things that might cause a problem coming out or it might limit your ability to, to get these patients excavated in a timely fashion. And I think that since we, we touched on an important quality metric, like you mentioned, the fast track extubation, another very important quality measure that I think intensivists need to be very aware of is glycemic control in the immediate post-op period. Do you want to comment a little bit on that, John? Yeah, absolutely. So glycemic control is something that we, we do pay very close attention to, particularly making sure that the blood glucose gets down less than 150. Um, we do provide a relatively tight glucose control. Um, so uh, it's not uncommon for us to start uh, insulin infusions on our patients pretty quickly. And there's a lot of reasons why patients tend to be hyperglycemic in the post acute postoperative phase. Um, obviously, epinephrine, it's a common inotrope that we use, causes some relative insulin um, sensitivity issues. So um, patients, we, we don't allow them to stay hyperglycemic for very long. Uh, so starting on insulin fusion early, getting the glucose under control within the first hour, uh, one to two hours is, is imperative. Um, so our nurses are very well trained in insulin titration. Um, this isn't usually an intermittent dose kind of thing. We usually start them off on a insulin drip quickly. Excellent. I think that um, the next uh, a portion of the podcast, I would like to dive into some of the complications that can occur post-cardiac surgery. And uh, I know that there's a lot that we can talk about, but I would like to kind of frame frame this as common complications that occur on a regular basis in a cardiac ICU post-operative would include some, some degree of bleeding and arrhythmias, and then maybe the more feared or severe complications that would be refractory shock including cardiac tamponade and cardiac arrest. So why don't we start with uh, with bleeding, which I think is something that we're always monitoring and that is very common. Absolutely. So um, bleeding is something that we're going to really rely on our, our nurses to keep us updated on. And particularly, uh, chest tube bleeding is one of the most common sites that we'll be able to actually see if the patient is actually having 
uh, some bleeding. If they come out of the, the OR, usually they'll have some mediastinal drains as well as a left-sided pleural drain. If it was a cabbage, sometimes a lot of bilateral pleural drains, depending on whether or not the right side of the chest best. So uh, some that are important to me. So if, if the patient's coming out within the first three hours and has uh, a bleeding rate of somewhere between 200 or 400 mLs an hour, that's a concerning sign for me. Um, and certainly might be a concern that patient needs to go back to the OR for exploration. Now, certainly as an intensivist, a medical intensivist, I'm trying to fix the fixables. Can I, is warm? Uh, have myopathy that's present? Is their PTT down to normal? Um, think about things like what's their platelet count? What's their fibrinogen? Um, so get them their platelets above 100,000, um, making sure that they don't have any clear platelet dysfunction. Were they on any preoperative plavix that might be causing some uh, delayed issues. Uh, what's this fix in the operating room? Um, getting the fibrinogen, making sure that the fibrinogen level is over 80 or 100. Um, those are some things that I can actually fix uh, relatively quickly because I can tell you it's not uncommon, especially as we get evening and we, we operate regularly past uh, midnight and these patients will come out around one o'clock. You know, it's two, three o'clock tomorrow. I'm like, you know, hey, the chest tube output's been about 400 an hour for the past two hours. You know, I'm concerned that might have an intercostal bleed or something like that. And they're like, you know, fix the coagulopathy, right? That's that's the idea for you. Fix the fix the coagulopathy. And if you can go back, can you say, listen, my patient's 98 degrees. Uh, their platelets are normal. INRs fixed. Their PTTs, you know, at a reasonable number, you know, 30. Um, and yeah, I fixed second fix, but they're still bleeding. Uh, you paint a case that maybe this patient should be actually go back to the OR rather than uh, sit and get an extensive amount of uh, transfusions in your ICU. Um, you know, and even other simple things like keeping a close eye on your blood pressure, keeping your systolic down, you know, 90 to 100 in these aggressively bleeding patients. Um, these are some things that you can uh, really stay on top of and, and basically make a case that it's it's not your fault. <laughs> no, I think, um, and I think this is very important and I, and I would like to reemphasize because obviously when we see bleeding, we're very likely to think, oh, this patient needs to go to the OR. But like you said, what we can control is make sure the patient's warm, make sure that we corrected the coagulopathies and the, pla the platelets, make sure the blood pressure is controlled, and uh, make sure that we have that information. And the other piece I think that is very important as a reference is uh, if you're if you're bleeding or you're draining more than 200 cc's per hour, that should be something that you should be paying attention to. Go ahead. No, absolutely. And then I think the flip side of that is something that many of us are in tune to as medical intensivists in terms of hemoglobin triggers for just red blood cell uh, transfusion. You know, transfusions and cardiac surgery. Uh, you know, cardiac surgeons oftentimes will treat transfusions no big deal, but I think the medical side of of me thinks, oh, well, each of these is a little transplant, comes with all potential complications. I want to try to minimize the amount of blood I'm giving my patient. Um, I, I'm usually, I'm, I'm pretty much guided at this point by um, a recent trial that came out of using a transfusion trigger of about seven and a half to eight grams per deciliter uh, in general cardiac surgery patients. Um, this trial looked at basically a composite outcome that was uh, death from any cause, post-operative MI, stroke, and new-onset renal failure. And between a conservative or a liberal strategy of 7.5 versus 9.5 grams per deciliter, there really wasn't all that much difference in outcome. So I think it's reasonable to kind of hold off for a transfusion trigger of eight in most patients. And I think Certainly, that might be a little bit different if the patient has... Go ahead. No, no, no. Hey, go ahead. Finish. Sorry. 
I was, I was going to say, I think that's, sometimes you may decide to up the transfusion trigger to, to um, maybe if the patient's having ongoing or active ischemia for some reason. Um, but in general, I, I stick to that eight grams per deciliter pretty, pretty well. And I think that what I was going to comment is that this, in this field, as in many other areas of critical care, we have moved to more um, restrictive transfusion uh, parameters. And even our CT surgeons are usually more comfortable with a little bit lower hemoglobin before they transfuse, especially in patients who are hemodynamically stable. Now, if somebody's bleeding or they're unstable, it might be a different story like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, other things to kind of keep in your back pocket, I think, is intensivist. We're becoming more facile with the use of ultrasound. So if there is a, a chest tube that's bleeding and then abruptly stops, um, or if you know the hemoglobin's drop in, they haven't got a whole lot of crystalloid, um, taking the ultrasound over to the bedside is often at least a useful tool for me. Um, you know, I'll take a look at the at the pleural cavities to see if there's any uh, obvious effusions. Maybe that chest tube's actually clogged, um, or there's a, a loculated effusion somehow or in some way. Um, and you know, so, some people might think that you actually can't get any good cardiac use with a with a bedside TTE, but you actually can. Uh, um, don't be afraid to move the dressing over a tiny bit and try to get a look at see if there's a pericardial effusion. And if your patient's not doing all that well, you'll often be surprised at what you'll find. And so even if it's just giving a, a initial trial, uh, um, doing some uh, simple views. Um, ultrasound is an invaluable tool in the, in, the, uh, in the post-cardiac surgery patient. And I think that the last part of bleeding that I would just want you to comment um, briefly, John, and is, which is out of our domain, but the surgical management, right? At one point, a surgeon, and a lot of times based on what happened in the OR, it might happen earlier, will decide to take the patient who continues to bleed back to the, to the OR. Um, any comments on what usually happens there? Yeah, so um, certainly it's preferable. And I, I think that um, there are times when uh, it's in the middle of the night and the patient's not doing well and there might be a concern for bleeding um, where a surgeon may decide to do something in the ICU at the bedside. But this has largely become more of an exception rather than the rule. I think that um, doing bedside procedures can often put a significant strain on the nursing staff as well as um, the clinical staff. It can really tie up a lot of research, I'm sure, um, kind of on the other side of the ICU. And inevitably, you know, the bleeding patient that you have in your unit is on the exact opposite side as the other sickest patient in your unit. And so you're left kind of running back and forth and trying to check on two things. So we do try to encourage uh, our surgeons and our surgical trainees to uh, take things back to the operating room um, to look closely uh, to where the site of bleeding is. And you know this may, in fact, delay your activation times and a few other things. But um, as with anything in critical care, moving slow is moving fast. So doing it right the first time is probably more important than uh, trying to take a shortcut. So um, our surgeons have been great. They're, they're really um, supportive about, hey, if the patient's bleeding, you're really concerned about them. Um, this is a clinical diagnosis. We'll take them back to the operating room once everything's fixed. So uh, it's, it's better for the patient from a sterility standpoint. Obviously, uh, it's always a concern in any of the, any of the pleural or mediastinal cavities. So um, we still regularly, if there's a concern, they'll go back to the OR. Hey. The other common complication that I think that uh, we can just touch on briefly because it happens so often is uh, the incidence of atrial fibrillation and other supraventricular arrhythmias. Any comments you want to make on that, John? Yeah, absolutely. So AFib is common. We see it nearly every patient. 
Um, and there's lots of re reasons for this. They just basically had their myocardium cut into it, the, the, the tissues, uh, basically irritable. And I think the clinical question is whether you use a beta blocker versus uh, another uh, or another drug like amiodarone uh, for rhythm control versus rate control. Um, and I think from the literature standpoint, um, there really doesn't seem to be all that much of a difference for most patients. Um, the, the last study published on the, our trial was in 2016, Jelenoff, uh, basically was a randomized control trial, rhythm versus rate controls. And uh, what they looked at uh, as their primary endpoint was number of days in the hospital, complication rate, and persistent AFib. And what they found at 60 days, there was basically no difference between using uh, beta blocker versus amiodarone. Now, that's kind of a long-term scope of uh, kind of interventions that you're gonna use for your patient. Um, now, in general, early on though, you're kind of limited by some of the other medications that the patient's on. So uh, at least in the first 24 hours postoperatively, it's not uncommon for a patient to be on catecholamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, something like that. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to use a beta blocker in those patients. So I, I do tend to use amiodarone liberally uh, in bolses of 150 and you know I may give two, three, even four doses of uh, amiodarone as a bolus to try and get this patient um, rhythm controlled. But oftentimes, it's the rate control effect of amio that, that kicks in first. So uh, many people uh, might not know that amio actually has a pretty significant beta blocker effect. Um, and that usually kicks in after a few doses. And if, if I'm not achieving a rate control, rhythm control, I may start them on an amio infusion just while I'm trying to wean off my catecholamines. Um, now, if the, certainly if the patient's unstable after they go into AFib, electrical cardioversion is not something that, um, or electrical cardioversion is something that you may have to do. Um, certain patients are more sensitive to being in sinus rhythm if they have uh, underlying, you know, a dilated atria and they need that atrial kick. Um, but uh, amio early on is something that uh, I tend to do. Um, but after they're off their vasoactives, um, instituting something like a beta blocker for rate control is uh, is kind of a next step sort of thing. Excellent. So let's talk about refractory shock. So patients who we have treated um, <clears throat> aggressively with hemodynamic support, their parameters keep getting worse. We have excluded or don't think that they are bleeding. What are the things that we should be worried about and how should we approach these patients? Yeah, so I think in my mind, there, there's like the big three of post-cardiac surgery uh, refractory shock. And uh, the big three here are going to be uh, tamponade, and this is usually a secondary to bleeding, um, but sometimes the result of something else I'll talk about, which is called loss of domain. Um, right ventricular failure is another thing to keep a close eye on or eye out for. And then uh, post-cardiopulmonary bypass vasoplegia is uh, another common cause of uh, post-cardiotomy shock. So I think to start out, let's just touch on tamponade first. And I think that there's a few signs that uh, we all are really keeping a close eye out for, um, which, like I mentioned before, something use, using other uh, hemodynamic signs. So um, oftentimes uh, an abrupt rise in your CVP um, or a, uh, a meeting of your CVP to uh, PA diastolic pressure is a concerning sign that um, there's something compressing uh, in the pericardium that's not allowing your heart to fill. And if you're seeing your CVP creep up slowly and towards your PAD, um, that should be a sign that, hey, you know, my cardiac index is low, my SVO2 is low. Um, you know, I, I think we need to either take a look with an echo um, or call the surgeon over because I'm certain, concerned this, this low cardiac index state that's not responding to my epinephrine that's been escalating over the past two hours 
might be tamponade. And oftentimes, this may even just be a clinical diagnosis, and I think oftentimes is. Um, but tamponade is something you have to have to keep an eye out for. And the other thing, the other kind of subtle clue that oftentimes um, you'll get pushed with is the nurse will be like, you know, I gave them a fluid bolus. They keep, they're, they're continue to be fluid responsive, but their index is low. Well, oftentimes it's just because, you know, they're fill, you're increasing their filling pressure. They're able to provide a cardiac output, but the, the pericardial pressures are kind of becoming overcome by your fluid challenge. So that's another kind of uh, hint that, hey, something's not going right. Do I need to be worried about tamponade? Um, the tricky part about tamponade as well is unlike our, you know, oncology patients, renal patients that often will have uh, kind of this diffuse pericardial effusion, uh, post-cardiac surgery, this can be due to a simple clot somewhere that you may not even see on echo. Um, so a focal clot can cause uh, tamponade as well. And again, this is sort of why I say tamponade still is a clinical diagnosis because uh, you're often left using your hemodynamic numbers to make this, make this diagnosis. Now, let's just say you go up to the patient, you do your echo, you don't see any uh, obvious clot or pericardial effusion. Um, another thing that you have to be worried about this is concept of loss of domain. And what loss of domain is, is eventually cardiac tamponade, but um, can be basically due to a high, high intrathoracic pressure that can happen from a multitude of reasons. So going back to the handoff, you know, a long cross clamp time, long OR time, uh, maybe some excessive uh, I, uh, fluid administration can cause edema of the chest wall. Um, and um, that, that patient may need um, a little bit of higher filling pressure, but as they close and they put their mediastinal wires in, uh, might cause the, um, a relative tamponade due to a high, you know, basically chest pressure or thoracic pressure that is uh, another cause of tamponade. So loss of domain is something that um, when you open, reopen the chest, and this sometimes does happen at the bedside, you'll see the hemodynamics all go back to normal as soon as those wires are cut. Um, so uh, loss of domain is something that if things aren't adding up, you don't see an obvious tamponade, but clearly is looking like tamponade. Loss of domain is something uh, to keep a close, a close eye on. So, so um, I think a, a good lesson here. Moving for, into the kind of the, go ahead, go ahead. Sir. A good lesson for our for our intensivists would be that the the, the transthoracic, especially uh, being a normal exam, does not necessarily rule out tamponade, and that we should really be thinking about it in terms of hemodynamic parameters and have a high index of suspicion. Go ahead, sorry. No, absolutely. So uh, another clinical scenario where you'll see a rising CVP and a reduced cardiac output, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, um, is in postoperative ventricular failure. Um, I think that many of us who work in uh, heart vascular ICUs primarily are, are certainly sensitive to this, but this is a um, something that can be a little bit more sneaky. Uh, so. Uh, you know, taking a look with your ultrasound often will give you a sense of, hey, is is my right ventricular a little bit more dilated than than it was once before? Um, and you know, if you go up on your epinephrine and you start to get a response, um, that might be something to key you in that um, you know the right ventricle is failing. And RV failure is uh, something that, again, you're starting to think about what other hemodynamic parameters can I manipulate to unload the right ventricle. So minimizing excessive IV fluid and blood product administration. Uh, can be valuable in this case. Uh, starting the patient, even on something like an inhaled pulmonary vasodilator, we often use a lot of inhaled flow land at our institution if a patient goes into the operating room with a high PA pressure. Um, this oftentimes will allow you to support the right ventricle through 
um, their post-operative course. Um, I know dilators, particularly milrinone, again, we talked about before, but can be helpful in reducing your PA pressures while also providing some inotropic support to the RV. Um, so these are all kind of tools in your toolbox that you can use if you're concerned that the patient is having RV failure. Another subtle sign that you might see if the patient is, is an early V-wave even in your CVP line. So uh, as the, the first kind of change that patients will undergo if their RV is starting to fail is RV dilation. And so as that RV starts to dilate, the tricuspid annulus will start to di dilate as well. And uh, you'll see a, a, a new wave on your CVP line. Um, that can be a, a sign of, of right ventricular dysfunction and failure early on. Excellent. Any comments, uh, John, on uh, the vasoplegic syndrome or the vasoplegic patient? So um, vasoplegia is, uh, is pretty common, and I think the incidence goes up the longer the, the bypass time. And oftentimes, this is kind of the patient's uh, blood response being in contact with the artificial circuit. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of predictors for who's going to respond. But I think at the bedside, some of the things that we're looking at are obviously a, a low filling pressure, a low CVP might suggest uh, vasodilation, um, a high cardiac output. So if your cardiac index is greater than 2.2 and your, or your, your output's greater than 4, um, you're seeing almost like a septic-type picture uh, might key you in that you know this patient's vasoplegic. And in that case, uh, I'm really leaning on my vasopressors first. Um, you know, norepinephrine to try and provide some additional systemic vascular resistance is helpful. Um, you know, start escalating up on um, your catecholamines, um, thinking about maybe some other things to do in patients with refractory vasoplegia. Um, so every now and then, um, we'll have these patients who are escalating on their vasopressor, and you may uh, provide something like early methylene blue is an option as kind of a salvage therapy. There's not a whole lot of evidence for this. I think um, one of the more exciting new drugs that have come in, angiotensin II, uh, it'll be interesting to see if that um, has an impact on post-cardiac surgery vasoplegia. Um, it was studied in just general vasoplegic patients, but uh, certainly another receptor that you could potentially saturate. Um, but again, uh, vasoplegia is common, and usually you get patients through with just a little bit of extended norepinephrine dose. Uh, limiting the amount of uh, crystalloid you're giving is going to be important. Um, but is common, but usually uh, fixable after about 24 hours of aggressive care. And, and of course, uh, uh, for all these refractory shock patients, post-cardiac surgery, there is a host of mechanical interventions or device support uh, devices that we can we can implement that I think will be maybe a topic for another podcast. No, absolutely. But I think it's a, a very important point that you bring up, uh, Sergio, is that um, if the patient's not doing well, um, allowing them to remain in shock for even just a few hours can be disastrous. So um, being in close contact with your cardiac surgeon, letting them know the interventions you've done, as well as your clinical concern. Um, it's not on post-cardiotomy uh, post shock is something that is at least uh, temporized by uh, early ECMO support that your surgeon should be obviously um, well adapted to be able to come in and provide. Um, it, other mechanical support options like a balloon pump are reasonable as a bridge to maybe more definitive therapy. Um, we are seeing a lot more impella use. However, I, uh, I'm still a little bit skeptical about the use of uh, impella as a primary support device for um, post-cardiotomy shock. I think it is a little bit more challenging to place. Oftentimes, it has to be placed, um, at least at our institution. It's not done at the bedside. 
um, and the amount of support provided um, is is you know I think that we think that it provides you know at least the Impella fives up to five liters of support, but um, our institutional outcomes have been a little bit uh, less robust in terms of what we would hope. So a definitive intervention like post uh, postcardiac shock delivered uh, fixed with ECMO is is what we go to first. Excellent. I think that as we move uh, to, cl- to the close of the podcast, a, a very important aspect, which I think at the end of the day, John, is the critical aspect in everything we do, which is the human part in terms of relationships, is worth discussing. And I do believe that for, for many intensivists, the relationships, especially in the early phases with the CT surgeon, might be difficult for many, many reasons. But I would definitely want to hear from you um, your, your insights and your thoughts on why this relationship is so difficult and how we as intensivists can make it stronger and better. So yeah, this is maybe even the most important part of the podcast, I think. Um, you know, as a fellow, I, I, I did my critical care training at University of Maryland, and um, we had a very high acuity cardiac surgery service. And the medical director there, Dan Herr, um, he's worked in cardiac surgery, I think, for about 20 or 30 years now. But he's a medical intensivist, and um, he really, really pushed the relationship aspect because uh, communication is is obviously important here. But one of the things he pushed really too is, hey, get try to take a step back and think about the implications of complications in terms of how it impacts this cardiac surgeon. You know, oftentimes he's, you come up with there may be a conflict in terms of uh, which way or what interventions. Uh, might benefit the patient. And his kind of approach was, listen, as a medical intensivist, my job is to make sure the ship moves forward. And if the intervention is not going to kill the patient, uh, then maybe it's okay to be a little bit flexible. You know, we don't treat this like working in a closed medical ICU. This is a truly collaborative environment. Um, But it's also important to keep in touch with the surgeons early. So let them know what's going on um, and what's, what's actually happening with their patient. Uh, the worst thing that could happen is you call six hours in and be like, hey, I've done this, this, and this, and they're still in shock. Um, they often really want to know what's going on early on. And it's not a failure to call your surgeon. Uh, um, it's often um, you know, just a progression. And so if I'm escalating vasopressors and the, the pa- patient's not really behaving the way I suspect, it's usually just a, hey, FYI, this is happening. Um, and this is what I'm going to do about it, but I'll let you know in an hour, um, even if it's just by a simple call or text message, um, how things go. It kind of prepares them mentally to kind of expect uh, what might happen, and that might require them to, you know, these these kind of uh, relationship-type decisions, if you give the surgeons a heads-up early on, it's much appreciated, not looked at as a, as a bother. Um, so I think that it can be challenging, and cer- certainly um, these surgeons um, are often tied to their outcomes much more differently than you or I would be as a general intensivist. So one of the public reporting things, as we mentioned, kind of with a quality rating, are their outcomes, and a, a death after cabbage can be devastating uh, to these surgeons um, in terms of their public reporting metrics. Uh, so. They're very sensitive about complications, uh, whether it's stroke, um, death, obviously, um, as this may impact their business. So um, putting yourself in their shoes is going to be important. Um, 
it's not necessarily reflected on your care per se as an intensivist, but obviously some of the other things that they're thinking about and worrying about should this patient not come out of the operating room as they hoped. Yeah. And I think from, from my perspective, just a couple of pearls are three things that I really have worked on over the years. And I think that really can help develop a strong relationship with your CT surgery um, team, especially with the surgeons is first remember that um, like any human being, if you engage them in the things that they enjoy and find out what their interests are outside of of the hospital and have those conversations on a regular basis in the ICU, it's a lot easier to have a conversation when things are not going very well with the patient. So develop some rapport with them and just understand what 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 are things that are important for them outside of, of maybe the, the, the ICU and the OR. Number two, I think, is that surgeons love to tell us what they did in the OR. So especially when they're doing new cases or complicated cases, ask them about the surgery, learn about what they're doing, learn from their perspective. And I think it's a way, it's a great way of, of establishing also a conversation and a relationship. And finally, I think what you mentioned, John, we need to be empathetic about how these outcomes really impact the way they're viewed by their colleagues, by the system and by patients in a way that we as intensivists don't experience that with any of the things that we do. Nobody knows that Sergio Sanotti has X percent of deaths or X percent of pneumothoraces with his central lines or collapses, all these things can be can be found in the public domain. And I think that really they own those outcomes. And that's why, like you mentioned earlier, they want to be informed early of what's going on so there's no surprises. So the last the last portion of the of the podcast, John, with your permission, we would like to to ask you some general questions not related to CT surgery, just to tap into your wisdom in life in general. Yeah, so uh, happy to do this, uh, Sergio. And I think this is you passed along some interesting questions. Um, which one would you want to tackle first? So let's go with the first one, which is. Uh, what book or books have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others? Okay, so interestingly enough, I think that um, when I was a, a chief resident, I, was, I, I did my primary training through emergency medicine. Um, my original program director was a, a professor, Amal Matu. And during our chief year, I did a kind of like a faculty development um, kind of twist on my chief year. And it was required reading that we re that we read uh, a book by Dale Carnegie, and this is an old, old book. I think it was published back in the 1930s. But the title was How to Win Friends and Influence People. And maybe this was a little bit of foreshadowing that I was going to find interest in cardiac surgery because a lot of these lessons uh, translate into the surgical ICU and how to kind of work with surge the the cardiac surgeons, um, but just in general in, in, with people. And this book has by far had a, a major impact on my life, um, not just in clinical medicine, but uh, in general with friends, family, uh, and uh, new uh, meeting new people uh, uh, at work. And I think that you know some of the examples of the the lessons that are taught in this book are, you know, simple things that are kind of like no duh, common sense sort of things. So, um, you know, Dale Carnegie talks about. Um, you know, become genuinely interested in other people, kind of do things on the ICU, uh, on, on the unit, like smile, remember the person's name, be a good listener, um, get to know other people's interests and kind of their perspective. 
Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful read and really brings just um, some common th sense things back to the front of your brain um, that I think can uh, make you much happier uh, in the ICU. Now, the other one is the question, I guess, which one do I gift most often? And um, it's a book called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. Um, the book is uh, basically a short um, autobiography about a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, and he was a professor where he, he was an engineer in virtual reality, and um, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, what he was tasked to do at Carnegie Mellon, they, they have this lecture series called The Last Lecture where they ask professors to talk about kind of their life and what they've learned. And it's a short book, it's a quick read. You can probably read it in about a day or two. Um, but it goes through his reflections about things that have made him um, kind of his goals, his successes, his failures. Um, that's a, a real eye-opening look at to, um, you know, some really important things in life. So uh, Randy Pausch, last lecture, I highly recommend it. Well, both excellent recommendations. And I think that the Dale Carnegie book in particular is extremely applicable to the ICU and the world of CT surgery as well, because um, like you mentioned, it's an old book, but it really speaks to a lot of truths and human relationships and how we can take control of making any relationship, especially at work, better. Excellent recommendations. And we'll add these to the show notes if people have interest in, in picking them up. And uh, the second question is, what do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe to be true? Um, so I think as intensivists, a lot of the work that we do tends to be complex. Um, but I think one of the truths I try to stick to is that simplicity is imperative what we do in, in work and life. Um, I certainly think there's a, a lot of art and medicine, but in large, a lot of the problems that we face are truly kind of like little engineering problems. And um, my background isn't in engineering or science. I actually uh, did my undergraduate education in um, economics. Um, but as I've gone through medicine, I've taken a more technical look at kind of what we do. And the complex problems are not just with the patients, with their physiology and everything else, but the, these, the other complex um, relationships are with patients and patients' families and kind of the decisions that they're making. And so I, I really try to make things as simple as possible rather than complex. And particularly in clinical decision-making, if you can make things simple for the providers that are providing care, it, it truly makes their job easier. And our job is to create that user interface uh, for you know the families, for care providers. Um, and so if you can make things simple um, and not go on these drawn out complicated kind of treatment algorithms, I think you'll have a lot more success uh, than, than the than the, uh, than the complex route. And I think that's great advice. And, and I would agree with you that especially physicians tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. And I think you're in good company because Albert Einstein said that everything should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. Excellent. So the, <laughs> the last question, John, it relates to what would you want every intensivist who's listening to this podcast to know? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that kind of tying on to this uh, theory of, or this idea of simplicity, I guess Steve Jobs is probably one of the, the faces or was one of the faces of simplicity. Um, and there's a little quote that I like from him that basically simple can be harder than complex. 
you have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end because when once you get there, you can move mountains. So I think uh, a lot of times what we do is feeling like we're trying to move mountains, but putting in the work to get things simple, um, whether it's at, at in the hospital or in life, um, pays off dividends. So uh, I guess that's the quote we can leave uh, leave today with. Excellent. And uh, John, want to thank you for your time and for your expertise. We definitely would look forward to having you again on Critical Matters to dive into more specific nuances of different types of surgeries and mechanically support devices. But again, it was a real pleasure talking to you today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.